Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who brings us great comfort. In the name of Jesus, amen. Here again, a portion of our epistle lesson from this morning, as St. Paul says to the Corinthians, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So far our text. Things were not going well for the Corinthian church. The congregation was at odds with itself, and it was tearing itself apart from the inside. There were divisions within the congregation. Factions were forming around personalities within the church so that Christ was divided. And these divisions were not based on doctrine and purity, but on covetousness. Not only this, an antinomian or lawless spirit had come upon the congregation so that sexuality, or sexual immorality was being accepted and celebrated within the membership of the church. And through this, people were led astray. And also, petty disputes were being brought to court so that brothers in the faith were suing each other rather than resolving their differences within the grace and the brotherhood of the church. There was disorder in worship where each person was doing whatever they felt like doing without any concern for the rest of the body. Those who were not called were taking it upon themselves to be the teachers of the faith. Men and women had confused roles within the congregation. The sacrament of the altar was being mistreated and abused, being treated as if it was just a normal meal and not the true body and blood of Christ. And this resulted and some getting fat and drunk while others were not being fed with the spiritual gift. And the guiding principle of Christian love was being ignored. And one of the most disturbing things for St. Paul was that there were those among the Corinthians that denied that even Jesus had risen from the dead, declaring it to be a symbolic fable or a myth. The Corinthians had problems. And St. Paul writes the letter that we read from today to address these problems. He and he's going to call out the entire congregation from every single one of these missteps. As he's raking them over the coals, though, he's going to make one thing clear. Above everything else, he's going to declare this one truth that hangs above every bit of what's going on with the Corinthians. God is faithful. Even as the congregation has proven itself to be faithless in many ways, God is faithful. This is the basis for everything that St. Paul is about to address. And as we read this morning, Paul begins the letter to the Corinthians with thanksgiving 
Well, how can he be so thankful when his congregation is falling apart? Well, God is faithful. It all culminates at that one point. The one who called you is faithful. He has enriched you in his word, in the knowledge of the gospel, and he will and he does confirm you in your faith. He sustains you in the forgiveness of sins. He will maintain fellowship with you through that perfect forgiveness. Everything God says he's going to do, he does. Well, how can this be? How can it be that God would take such a disordered and messed up congregation and do all these amazing things why would God work such a promise how could he possibly imagine creating a perfect fellowship with such petty despicable disordered and loveless fools and the answer is he's faithful what God promises God does And so if God has promised that he will forgive these poor sinners, he does it. If God has said that he will take people that are not a people, uh, that are divided in every way possible, and make them into his chosen, holy, and precious people, well, he will do it. Whatever God says he will do, he does. And that is where we, as Christians, live. That's where the Christian faith continually dwells. It lives in and by the promises of God. We Christians can stand securely on that truth. Problems will arise, but even as they do, God is faithful. Problems do arise for people. Faith is scandalized. Christians are violated. When people want to build on things that are not promised by God. And this happens probably more than we would like to admit as we live in this world, as we look at the world around us. We can see the devil's a pretty crafty deceiver, and he loves to dupe people into false security with God. And so he shapes his lies in such a way that they sound really pious. They sound really holy. And then he creates some sort of different path, some different way to God that stands really outside of the promises. His servants, all those teachers of false doctrine, they love to step up and start spouting off demonic lies. And so you have the purveyors of false doctrine saying things like, well, send me money and God will return tenfold blessings upon you. Or adopt the lessons that I teach you in my book and you'll be met with wealth and success. Or begin using this mission strategy among all the others, with your congregation, and we guarantee your church membership will grow tenfold. Or God speaks through culture, and we live in a culture, and it's safe and good to adopt whatever our current culture values, so we can toss out some of these bits of scripture for something more culturally acceptable, and God will be just fine with it. Or we cannot be so insistent on doctrine and truth if we want to find unity within the church of God, so we have to tame down the preaching, or baptism doesn't save you, but if you say the sinner's prayer, you're in, or the Lord's Supper cannot forgive sins and strengthen faith, the only way you'll get that is if you experience and have an emotional experience and encounter with the Holy Spirit. 
You see, they take something that sounds pious. Every Christian wants their church to grow. Every Christian wants blessings from God. Every Christian wants the, the, the world around them to accept and receive what they preach. Every Christian wants to have their sins forgiven. Every Christian wants to have a close encounter and experience the love of God. And so what does the devil do? He takes these things that Christians love, tweaks them just a little bit, and says, here's the God's honest truth. And often, these lies pervert the body of Christ as they lead many astray, as they, they break us in our saving faith. They, they cause people to base their faith, their life, their confidence on things that God hasn't promised. False confidence will always crumble away eventually as it proves itself to be weak. And so when people base their hope and their life before God on something that God hasn't promised, what happens? It crumbles and falls. Yet when we place our confidence on this sort of thing all the time, when we often base our faith on maybe personal subjective experiences, right? When we're considering our place before God, we try to judge where we stand before God based on all the external circumstances in our lives, right? And so when our lives are going really, really well, we conclude, hey, God must be with me. And so I get a raise or I find some sort of earthly prosperity and I say to myself, hey, I'm living right. God must be really pleased with me. I, I must have done something to make him happy and now I'm reaping the rewards of all the good I've done. And the Aaron verse can be true too as we find ourselves suffering in one way or another, as we, we experience sickness, as we experience loss, as we experience death or poverty or disapproval from the world and then we say, oh, God must be punishing me because I've done something that has made the Lord angry with me. Why else could this be happening? But if we examine these things, we can see that none of these claims hold any truth when we hold them up to the Bible. When we look to the Word of God, we see that God does not claim that earthly prosperity is a marker of his love and favor. It's not something that we should place our confidence in. As Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, with only difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And so earthly prosperity can actually be a stumbling block in faith in life before God. And also on the inverse, suffering, poverty, sickness or weakness, that's not an indication that God is angry with us and that we're outside of God's salvation. Rather, we can actually, when addressing these things with the promises of God, can confidently say that God is acting in love even if we don't understand why painful or sad things are happening. As the scriptures teach us, they say, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And so when we face troubles, when life is hard, when we endure difficulty or pain or sadness, we may not have the answer immediately of why, but we can say that God is treating us as children. And we can conclude that even as we endure through suffering or struggle in any way, that we know that God is also strengthening and tempering our faith so that we can endure to the end.
These are just two examples of how people often live with a deluded perspective of God and life before him. As we let our faith and our belief be governed by what we see, what we feel, and what we can conclude about our experiences in life. As if God were so subjective that we must divine his will and his attitude toward us based on our own personal feelings, our own personal experiences. But this is never what God calls us to look at when he desires us to know his will and his attitude towards us poor sinners. No, he gives us something much firmer, much more certain. As he reveals himself through his word, his objective and faithful word is what proclaims God's promises. And the word tells us all that we must know about God, his will, his work, and his salvation for sinners. And we do ourselves a disservice when we look elsewhere to know anything about God and life in his holy Christian church. When we stray from the word of God and any article of faith and life, we base our hope and our belief on something that will eventually crumble and fall beneath our feet. And if we're not deceived by blatant lies or simple experiences, sometimes we find reason to deceive us. God has given us our reason, right? That stuff, that ability to think. And he's given it to you as a gift, right? Our reason often proves to be very useful in this life. It helps us to find and debate what's true, what's not true. It helps us to make good decisions. It helps us to avoid danger. It helps us to interpret the scriptures. Yet our reason can also drive us into insecurity. When we elevate our ability to think, our reason, over and above God's word, we begin to dispute what God has told us. We begin to step up and... and think that we are in the position where we can tell God what's true and not true. And so we come to conclusions about God that he would not lead us to. And so we begin to say things like, oh, there's no way that God created the universe in six days. So Genesis, that's some sort of parable. Or we can't find Noah's ark, so Noah and the flood must just be a myth. Or it's not realistic to believe that people rise from the dead. So Jesus' resurrection, that must be just symbolic of repentance or something. Or we don't like the idea of hell, so I won't believe in it. Or God really is just something that people constructed to explain the things that we can explain now with our science, our reason, our deduction. And so we don't have any use for this religion stuff anymore. See how quickly things can go astray when we begin to depend upon our simple reason. God warns us against that too. In Proverbs it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. The prophet Isaiah says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so as we live in this world, we must live with the understanding that all of our wisdom and thinking must be subjected to the clear word of God. Our reason, our knowledge, our wisdom, our experience must bow down before what God declares to us in the Holy Scriptures. 
It must be made a servant of God's word and must never stand as a critic of what God tells us is true. Faith in God must predominate over our own fallen wisdom. And so what do you see here? As we think about all of this, when we see man's promises are fallen, we see that our experience can deceive us. We see that our reason can falter and lead us away from God's truth. And as we think about that, we have to ask, well, what is reliable? What is true? What can we depend on in this life? And to go back to the words of St. Paul, God is faithful. What God promises is true. What God says will happen. And so, what does God promise us? What promises are we to cling to? What should we hope in? Well, St. Paul tells the Corinthians, and the later chapter of Corinthians, it says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and the power of God, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so here we see Paul comes to the Corinthians and he speaks in weakness. He looks like a fool. He seemed afraid to utter the word of the gospel. What he said was not reasonable. What he said was not plausible. He simply declared that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came down from heaven and was made man so that he could die for sinners. And he proclaimed that Jesus forgives sins. And in that forgiveness we have life, eternal salvation, a home in heaven, and a promised resurrection from the dead. Well, let's evaluate these things. All of these things are totally improbable. They seem like fairy tales. They seem like delusions of grandeur. grandeur. Uh, yet they are the truest and most reliable words that a person can receive. Why? Because they're God's words. These promises are God's promises. They come from the mouth of the very one who spoke at the beginning. God is faithful. He will do what he's promised to do. His word does exactly what it says it's going to do. As Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And so what do we hear? That God sent his son into the world to be given for our salvation. And we must believe that we are saved as Jesus is given as our sin offering and that through faith in him we have exactly what Jesus promises. And then Jesus says, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so what do we believe here? We believe that this gospel promise that Jesus dies for sinners is received in baptism. 
that baptism in itself has the promise of salvation attached to it, and we can confidently receive these waters of baptism as a means of grace in which God saves sinners. The death of Christ is applied to a sinful and fallen person so that the sin is washed away. Jesus says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. And so what do we believe? So we believe that God gives the authority to forgive sins to his holy Christian church. And so when God declares your sins are forgiven you, that declaration is just as true in heaven as it is on earth. And we can receive that word of absolution in faith and put our consciences at ease knowing that God has freed us from the sins that burden our hearts through forgiveness. The cross is applied to the proclamation of the church that sinners are forgiven. What does Jesus say? He says, this is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me, and this cup is poured out for you and the new covenant of my blood. And so, what do we believe? We believe that when Christians approach the altar of God and eat and drink the bread and wine, that we are receiving the true body and blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. We receive exactly what Jesus has promised us. His body that was killed and his blood that was spilled is given to the faithful to do exactly what it's meant to do, to forgive us. And so we look at what God works. We look at what God promises just within the body of the church. Well, what is produced? What is worked in the hearts and the lives of God's Christians? What do we walk away with as we leave the Sunday service, as we assemble as the body of Christ? Clean consciences, forgiveness from the throne of God, a new life of water and the Spirit, assurance and hope for salvation, the body and blood of Jesus. These are the gifts of God worked by the Holy Spirit to make us rich in grace. St. Paul said in our epistle lesson, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you await for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how is the testimony confirmed? How are the saints in Corinth guiltless? How are God's Christians preserved to the end? How are they rich in grace? Well, it's through the continual forgiveness of sins that God fills our lives with. As we look at these great means of grace, we can see that even if a preacher is negligent in preaching the gospel, or if a person does not pay attention, the one truth still shines through everything. Jesus died to forgive sinners. The life of every Christian revolves around that one promise. As we live in and by and for this promise, we are blessed. In these gifts, we are united with Christ in a perfect, eternal unity and fellowship. We are drawn out from the false and broken promises of this world into the truthful and complete promises of God. And it's all rooted in one thing. Jesus dies for sinners. It's all rooted in the forgiveness of sins. It's all about the cross. As we live in this promise, God makes us rich in grace. He's freed us from ourselves. He's called us into unity in the fellowship of his love. My dear friends, 
hear this. There's nothing more dependable, nothing more lovely, nothing more wonderful or praiseworthy or blessed than these dearly bought and freely given promises of God. Even if we, like the Corinthians, prove to be weak and ignorant, irreverent and foolish, God's promises are still true. As the word says, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If he, we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And so, my dear friends in Christ, God is faithful. Remember this. And in this, be free. Free yourself from every deluded and false promise that you receive in this life. Separate yourself from every form of false confidence and false hope that you might fill yourself with. Pray that God would help you to discern what is truthful and what is not. And finally, rest in this. As St. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Know that your hope is built on nothing less than the ultimate and truthful word from God, that your sins are forgiven you. If you have this gift, you have everything. You're not lacking anything before God. Though your life be stripped of every physical comfort, though you may not have any worldly promise to cling to, you lack nothing before your God. This is the promise that sustains us to the throne of heaven and the resurrection of our bodies. Jesus dies for sinners. Jesus forgives sinners. Let us pray. Gracious Father, help us to be content and trusting in your promises. Cause us to cherish above all else the forgiveness of sins that is won for us by Jesus. And in this forgiveness, work fellowship and unity between Christ and your church. In the name of Jesus, amen. And now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen.